Hey, good morning, Christ Church. In uh, 1992, I lived in Dominican Republic. I was there for four or five months. I was doing a study abroad. I was an undergrad student. It was kind of the end of my years as a student. And um, I was majoring in Spanish, and I was spending some, uh, some months there just in immersion and in an internship and in international development. And um, that time of my life, and particularly I think of that, that semester was like peak moment of what I'm about to tell you was a period of deep doubt for me, severe crisis of faith. I had become a Christian as a youth. I had followed Jesus in high school and into my college years. And, um, and this was a moment that was, I was really wrestling at the deepest level. It was not just wrestling with this or that doctrine or theological uh, belief here or there, but more down at the root, is this whole thing even true? Is there even a God was the level of questions. And it, it was severe enough that I, I, I really didn't know in the middle of it if I was going to come out on the other side of it following Jesus or not. It was that kind of a, of a wrestling with my, my faith. Hanging on by a thread. While I was there, I met a couple that lived in Santiago. Santiago is the second largest city in Dominican Republic, right in the, kind of the middle of the country. And I, I met this couple and would sometimes go over there, hang out with them, got to know them a little bit. And um, I also had some music with me. And this was pre-digital age, so I had a Walkman and like two or three cassettes. And that's it. That's all I could listen to the whole time I was there. And um, so, you know, I just played the fire out of those cassettes. I knew that I knew what I, I had mixtape and um, I discovered a guy there named Juan Luis Guerra, who's like king of merengue, which is a Dominican style music. And uh, so I just, I, I knew those tapes inside out. I was getting a little tired of them. And I was telling this couple about that. And um, they had some cassettes and um, they said, take one of these. You just borrow one for the rest of your stay so you can, you know, expand a little bit. So I did, and I chose one that uh, they had, and it's called Handel's Water Music. Anybody heard of Handel's Water Music, that piece? And um, so I listened to that. I'm not a classical music aficionado. I don't have any training, uh, but I just listened to this over and over. And you know how you have that experience when you go to one thing over and over and over and over? You start to, like, notice things. You start to notice themes and repetitions and movements in whatever it is, and I started to, to notice things, and so I started to kind of gained this appreciation with this close and repeated listening uh, to this music. So I'm going to pause right here, and I'm going to let you hear about 30 seconds of Handel's Water Music, and then I'll finish this story. All right, so you might not, when I said Handel's Water Music, you might not know what I was talking about. Then you heard that, like, oh, I've heard that piece. Is that true for some of you? So um, after listening to this for a while, um, one of the things that began to happen for me in relation to my, my, my doubt and my questions is through that semester, I, I, there were a few things I was like, what can I hold on to? What do, what do I know? What 
is some evidence that there is a God, that this all might be true. What threads can I just like, even if it's a thread, I can hang on to this thread. And I began to, in my journal, just kind of like jot down a few things. And they're all over the map of what they were. Um, but one of them, after this experience with this piece of music and through those months, um, one of those threads was beauty. By the end of a few months, it was one thing that I thought, maybe there is a God, because there is such a thing as beauty. And here's how I, how I got there. I just began to, as I listened to these notes, these are just, you know, scientifically speaking, these are sound waves that can be measured, you know, at particular frequency is a note. And, um, but then I thought, you know, okay, there's all these different sounds, but then one sound, one frequency can sound a lot of different ways. There's, you know, five, 10, 15 different instruments in that piece. They can all play the same note and it sounds a little bit different. It just has a different kind of tone to it. And then I begin to think, okay, if these are just notes, random sounds, there is no God, there is no inherent like order or a beauty thing, like they're just random, you know, you might as well just like jumble them up in a ball, kind of like, you know, bingo style, and, and just spread them out and see where they land. And what are the chances that they would land in such a way that you have Handel's water music in that particular order and combination? And then what are the chances that that would then move me? Why? Why does it move me? Why does music, why does beauty move me? So this connection between some sense of there's a, there's a coherence, an order, a fittingness of things that makes this beautiful, and that that I, as a, another creature in the universe, respond to that in a way that I'm moved by it. Now, after all of that, I'm not saying that that's proof of the existence of God, but it was one thread, and I had a handful of threads that kept me going. Uh, that pointed to God. And this is the language that we're working with these four weeks. This is the last of four weeks where we're borrowing some categories from a guy named N.T. Wright. He wrote a book, Simply Christian. Uh, the subtitle is, Does Christianity Make Sense? And he identifies these four things. And we've spent the past four weeks looking at these. Uh, these are what you might call threads. They're, they point to God. No single one is proof of the existence of God, but they're echoes of a voice. None of these things is the voice, but these things tell us there is a voice, and I'm hearing an echo of that. There's some reverberation of a creator, of a being greater and transcendent than I. So we talked about relationship. We talked about spirituality. Last week, justice, and today, beauty. Beauty as something that is an echo of a voice. The Christian faith makes sense of these four echoes. These are things that all humans everywhere, this is not like something that we're saying or just Christians identify with, all humans throughout history and all over the world have these fundamental longings, yearnings in us. The Christian faith makes sense of these four echoes. And then the rest of this sermon series, what we're going to do beginning next week is we're going to, they're going to take us into the Christian story. 
and say, all right, if these are echoes of a voice and there is something that points to a creator, can we know that creator? What's that creator like? And so then we're going to get into the Christian story for the rest of the summer that answers those questions. Can we know that creator and what's that creator like? Our first reading today was from Genesis 1 and 2, and it's the creation story. You recognize that. It's very uh, familiar. But more particularly in the creation story, you might have noticed it was the last day. The final words of the sixth day and then the seventh day, which is the Sabbath day. And God says at the end of each day, he says, after he makes something, he says, that's beautiful. And then he gets to the last at the end of it all, and after everything, he says, he puts emphasis on it. He says, that's really beautiful when it's all together at the end. Verse 1 of chapter 2 summarizes that creation, those six days this way, and the seventh Sabbath day this way. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. The Christian story celebrates the goodness of this material world, this created world, this earthly life, all the things that our our senses can perceive, taste, touch, sight, smell, sound. This is what we take in, and this is how we perceive beauty, is through our senses, this created world that's been combined in different ways by ourselves. And appreciated in those combinations. It's through our senses that we engage the beauty of the earth. And the beauty of what we make of the earth, of the world, of the materials of creation. So over and again, the Christian story affirms this. Affirms what our senses can perceive. Not only in creation, we see it first there, that kicks it off. But then you have the incarnation. When God says, I am going to reveal myself in the most full way possible to my creation, and he does it by becoming part of his creation. You might say, okay, that's good. He created the world, he entered the world, creation is affirmed, but then he dies. Well, no, that's not the end. Then he's resurrected bodily in physical form. And then he ascends in physical, because creation story. The voice behind the echoes calls to us. It calls to you and me, and it doesn't call us to escape this world into an otherworldly or disembodied or so-called spiritual reality, but into this world and into our humanity, into a full-orbed sensory engagement with the beauty of this earthly life. That's the Christian life. Now, the further we get into this topic... We also become aware that life is complicated, that yes, there is beauty in the world, but there's also ugliness in the world, that we live in between creation and new creation. And a lot of what we're doing as humans on this planet is learning to navigate this in-between space, this messy middle, where there's beauty and ugliness, where we're between creation and that seventh day declaration and new creation when all things shall once and for all be well. 
This is part of our human vocation to navigate these times. And artists help us do that. They help us live between the times. In this time between the times, between the new creation and the new creation, they help us navigate this world of beauty and ugliness that are all mixed together in the complexity of it all. But not just artists. This is actually something that we are all created to do. This is part of our human vocation. And he Wright, in, that, in his book that we're, we're looking at, he speaks to some things that he's identified as what all humans everywhere do. Now, before we looked at things that all humans everywhere throughout all time, yearnings, longings of the heart, but here are actions, things that we, here's what humans do. You might call this the human vocation. Let's put these back up. To honor the complexity and simplicity of the world, humans do five things. We tell stories. We act our rituals. You might say, wait, I don't tell, I'm not a novelist. I'm not a writer. I don't tell stories. Well, have you ever at the end of the day sat down with a friend or family member and said, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today? And you tell a story. This is how we make meaning. This is how we connect. This is, we tell stories. We act our rituals, whether that's your morning coffee ritual or your family or household meal ritual, or what we do here at the church and what we're doing this morning. We create beauty. This is what humans do. We work in communities, and we work out beliefs. This is what we think about reality and the way things are, and this is what humans do. Now, again, you might say, when we create beauty, you might go, I'm not an artist, but I guarantee you that I could spend maybe five minutes in wherever you live, and I could point to the things you're doing to create beauty. And whether it's a bed that's made just right military style, and there's an order to that, or it's what you've done with your home, or how you live your life, or the music you're listening to, or that you make, or the instrument you play, or... Uh, we, we, we can't help ourselves but to, in our own little ways, bring that about. So we are all part of that. Eugene Peterson talks about artists and their vocation in leading the way for this and helping us with this. He says, there's more to beauty than we can account for empirically. In that more and beyond, we discern God. Artists who wake up our jaded senses and help us attend to these matters our gospel evangelists. In the presence of the beautiful, we intuitively respond in delight, wanting to be involved, getting near, entering in. And then he describes that we can't, almost, we can't help ourselves, like tapping our feet, humming along, touching, kissing, meditating, contemplating, imitating, believing, praying, painted prayers, sung prayers, danced prayers, it's the very nature of our five senses to pull us into whatever is there. Scent, rhythm, texture, vision. And it's the vocation of the artist to activate our sense so that they do just that, our senses. So we are invited to become co-creators with God. That's part of our human vocation. The past, uh, last week, for example, with some of these topics, we've invited a member of our congregation who works 
in this space or topic to come and share with us a bit. And uh, last week, Father Matt talked about justice, and Christine was up here talking about justice. I've asked Katie Fox to come out and share this sermon with me today. Uh, would you come on up? Where's Katie? Katie Fox is our arts pastor, and um, she and, and Sean for many years, and now she, Katie, is our kind of director of everything arts and leads us in this way where I'm talking about we as a church want to be brought into this part of our vocation ourselves, and Katie helps us experience that, whether it's something like turning our space into an art gallery during Austin East or every time we have an ad hoc uh, choral performance by our, our sometimes occasional Christchurch choir. Um, Katie's the director of that. And in all kinds of making events and encouraging artists and the discipling and formation of artists, Katie leads us in all of that. Um, so would you welcome Katie Fox? Good morning, Christchurch. Good morning. I am so honored and excited to be able to share with you this morning. Um, as Father Cliff said, my name is Katie Fox. I lead the Faith and Arts Ministry here at Christchurch. And um, if you are interested in knowing more about that, um, I would love to talk with you another time. But this morning, I've been asked to talk about a topic that is very near and dear to my heart that I've been studying and learning about for a number of years now, and that is beauty. So I want to begin by sharing a story with you. About 10 years ago, my family and I were just out driving in the city. My husband, Sean, was driving. I was in the front passenger seat, and my girls were in the back. We were just driving along, and we happened to pass a fence where a mural had been painted. So this fence faced out onto a pretty busy street in a part of town that we would call a bad part of town. Um, it's a part of town where you would see a lot of things like um, pawn shops, uh, payday loan offices. We knew there was a lot of gang activity, drug activity, prostitution, all of that kind of activity. And in other words, this part of town was what might be called the opposite of beauty. And we actually had some friends who lived in the area, and they had gotten together with their neighbors to create a community art project um, and painted this mural on the back of a fence. And it, if we have an image of it, yes, there it is. And it said, beauty will save the world. And that, that was actually, on the other side of the fence was actually their backyard. So this mural faced right out onto this busy street in this part of town, and everybody who passed by saw it. And when we saw it, we just had to stop and pull over and stare at it for a while. We, we were just um, so overcome by its beauty and by just the kind of subversiveness of it, this act of love and faith in the midst of an area that was so ugly and broken. Um, so as we were driving and we pulled over, we were staring, I pointed it out to Molly, my daughter, who was six years old at the time. And I said, look at that. That's so beautiful, isn't that? And she looked at it, and she read it. And then she looked at me, and she looked at the fence. And she said, beauty will not save the world. God will save the world. 
which is, you know, that makes sense, especially coming from a six-year-old. And I said, yeah, 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 but what is God? Who is God? I was trying to kind of mentally will her to connect some dots. <laughs> and she kept looking and kept looking, and then her frown started to fade, and she got this big, wide-eyed look on her face, and her big dimples came out, and she said, God is beauty. And that's it. That's exactly it. At the age of six, she got it. Beauty will save the world, and God is beauty. But what does that actually mean? What does that mean, practically speaking? Let's dive into that for a little bit. In the prophet Isaiah's writings, he is speaking about the coming Messiah. And he wrote that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. But I would assert that we can find our best and most perfect example of beauty, not in a certain painting or piece of music, but actually in the crucified Christ. His beauty is displayed not in his appearance, but in what he did for us on the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection became our ultimate example of the redemptive power of beauty. And I think that we know this intuitively. For example, we sing a lot of songs in worship about the beauty of Jesus, right? There's an old worship song by Keith Green that says, Oh Lord, you're beautiful, your face is all I seek. Um, there's another song we sing here at Christ Church that we're going to sing later during communion that has the line, your beauty arches above it all. And there's another song that we've sung in the past called You're Beautiful that actually speaks of the crucifixion and it has the lines, I see you there hanging on a tree, you bled and then you died and then you rose again for me and now you're sitting on your heavenly throne, soon we will be coming home, you are beautiful. So when people ask, what is beauty? How do you define beauty? There's so many ways we could try to answer that question, but I think the best and my favorite answer is understanding beauty through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I do realize that that might sound like the perfect Sunday school answer, right? What is beauty? Beauty is Jesus. Um, but actually, this answer adds a lot of nuance and even complicates our idea of beauty. Because what it means is that beauty does not have to be pretty. Right? If we associate beauty and get our foundation of beauty with Jesus on the cross, that's not pretty. Beauty doesn't have to be associated with happiness or lightheartedness, as we often think of it. But actually, beauty runs deeper than that. Sometimes beauty and grief are closely intertwined. I'm sure some of you have experienced that. I, I, even simple things like sending my daughter off on her first day of kindergarten. It's beautiful, right? She's doing something that she's grown into, she's ready, and I'm weeping, right? <laughs> so sometimes beauty and pain go hand in hand. Sometimes beauty shines through something that at first glance appears ugly or even offensive. Just as the cross of Christ can also be seen as ugly or foolish or offensive, right? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians and in Galatians, the foolishness of the cross, the offense of the cross. 
But <clears throat> the true meaning behind the crucifixion of Christ, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, right? So that is what gives it beauty. So when Isaiah says that the Messiah had no beauty, he says there is no beauty when we look at him. This Hebrew word that he uses actually there for beauty refers to outward appearance. He's talking about the kind of beauty that we equate with aesthetics, whether or not we find something to be aesthetically pleasing. And I think that is different than beauty because if beauty will save the world, we need a beauty that is far more powerful and far deeper than simply beauty we find aesthetically pleasing. We need beauty that's strong enough to turn the world upside down. Sometimes we call this the upside down kingdom, where the last shall be first, the first shall be last, and everything sad becomes untrue, and the broken are restored, and everything ugly becomes beautiful. And that is what Jesus did on the cross. He turned this ugly Roman execution device into this beautiful tool for our redemption. And by his spirit, alive and working in us and through us, he is still doing that in our world even now. He's creating beauty, redeeming us and sanctifying us, making us more and more into the people whom he created us to be. And he is also redeeming his creation. So that's one way that beauty will save the world. But we can also find a foundation for our understanding of beauty in our creator God. So we sang this morning when we um, began worship, we sang for the beauty of the earth. If you were here, I love that hymn. I'm so glad we sang that on the morning that we're talking about beauty. Um, God created a gorgeous world, right? He made it a beautiful place. He did not have to do that. Have you ever thought about that? He did not have to do that. It could have been purely functional, but he created this beautiful world whether you're talking about sunsets, fields of wildflowers, snow-capped mountains, or the colors in a desert landscape, there is just gorgeousness in our creation everywhere you look. Thousands, probably, that's I think God loves variety and color and abundance and beauty. He didn't have to make that kind of a world, but that's what he chose to do. So I think it's reasonable to conclude that that gives him great pleasure. And in fact, it says in scripture that creation gave God so much pleasure that he called it good over and over and over. It's good, it's good, it's very, very good. And even that word good in the Hebrew is sometimes translated in other places in the Old Testament as beautiful. He calls it good, he calls it beautiful. And then, to top all that off, God created humans. But he didn't set them into a wild space. He set them into a cultivated space. He set them into a garden. A garden is a space that has been cultivated to be beautiful. And he asked those humans to steward and care for that space, just as he would. So from the beginning, he asked us to be part of creating and caring for beauty. And now that we live in a world which is still beautiful, but also broken and marred by the ugliness of sin, God has invited us in. He has invited us to participate in his renewal of all creation, to be part of his redemption plan. 
and to fulfill his mission in the world, to bring about the new creation, to help usher in the new heavens and the new earth. N.T. Wright talked about this, that all humans have a desire to create beauty. God made us that way. It's a universal human urge within all of us. And it's part of our nature, no matter what our culture is, no matter what our background, it just runs across all of humanity. We have this desire to create beauty because God placed it in each of us, just as he made us in his image as he is a creator God. He made us with desire and capacity to create beauty. And that's part of fulfilling our vocation as human beings. So whether you might be a teacher in a classroom, creating a beautiful space for your students to learn, creating order out of the chaos of algebra or whatever the case may be, there's beauty. We're imaging God and creating that just as God created order out of chaos, and it was beautiful, there is beauty in creation, making, creating beauty as you do when you're a teacher. If you're a business person or in politics, you're creating good structures, good laws, things that reflect the nature of God's heart, creating beauty out of chaos. That's still a part of our vocation of creating beauty. And maybe you're a homemaker. You can create a beautiful table. You can create beautiful t uh, spaces for your children, for your roommates even, if you are single and you want to create a beautiful meal together. There are so many ways that God created us to want to create beauty, and there are infinite ways that we can fulfill that aspect of who he made us to be in our vocation. So what all this means is that when we are empowered by the Spirit to create beauty, I think there's actually a number of things going on behind the scenes. And one of them, the first that I'll mention, is that when we create beauty, we are imaging our Creator God, right? We are acting as His representative in the flesh here on Earth. Back in ancient Near East times when somebody ruled over an area but they that, that part of the country was far away from where the actual ruler lived, they would set up a statue of themselves in that geographic region to remind the people, hey, I'm not here, actually, but here's my statue. So you won't forget, I'm in charge of you. I'm your ruler. And that's exactly what God, that was being, those, those statues were in the ruler's image. So that's kind of the same thing that we see in creation. God created us in his image, and he set us here on earth to be his representative here in the flesh and act as he would. So when we are creating beauty, we are imaging our creator God. The second thing that happens when we create beauty is we are helping to create some of those echoes that we've been talking about, those echoes of God's voice here in the world that help reveal God, that help create signposts to point people to a bigger, more beautiful, more true reality. So when we are creating beauty, we are helping to create all of those signposts. And another thing that happens when we create beauty is that we're participating in the redemptive plan of God to usher in the new creation. We are working to set the world aright. We're saying, Lord, your kingdom come. 
God's upside-down kingdom, where the last shall be first, and the first shall be last, and everything sad comes untrue, the broken are restored, and everything ugly becomes beautiful. I love this quote from N.T. Wright, which I believe is actually from his book, Surprised by Hope, but he, he writes this, what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, all these activities will last into God's future. They are not simply ways of making the present a little less beastly, a little more bearable. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. So, though we may not all be artists, we are all created by God in his image with a desire to make beauty, a capacity to create beauty, and a calling upon our lives to be part of the redemptive work of God. That is how beauty will save the world. Through the beautiful death and resurrection of Jesus and the beautiful work of God's people in the world, we will someday be able to see the fruit of all of our labors. And we won't any longer simply hear the echoes of a voice. We will hear his actual voice, God's voice. And we'll be face to face with Jesus, who will be even more beautiful than we can possibly imagine. Lord, may it be so. Amen. Thank you, Katie. Um, you know, what we've been doing throughout the series, you can interact with Katie some more. We've been having a Wednesday night conversation where we extend the sermon into a midweek conversation. And so, Katie, this Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, is going to lead further conversation around this topic in ways that complement this morning, but also more interactive and conversational. So um, we've had a bunch of you have come the past few weeks. We've been, we've been doing that with these other topics, and we're going to do it throughout the summer. So if you want to engage this further, join us uh, this Wednesday night, uh, right across the courtyard in the parish hall, and uh, Katie will be leading further discussion about it. So thanks again, Katie.